What's up? What's happening? What's going on? Welcome back to Ground Up Faith. This is the show where we have conversations with the peculiar people, places, and practices of Christianity. Got a fun show in store for you today. This is our third episode of the show. We're going to do just a little bit of a neuroscience because y'all know by now I like to kind of uh, delve into science a little bit. We're going to hear a fantastic story about a guy named Michael Scott Moore who was uh, held captive by Somali pirates. And we're going to consider what it means to be a person of forgiveness from his story. So stay tuned as we roll that intro and get ready for a whole lot of fun, I think. you are and whatever time of day it is, I hope that it is a good one and thank you for listening. This is the uh, third episode of the Ground Up Faith podcast show. Uh, Is that the way you word it? podcast show. I don't know. Uh, But anyways, uh, thank you for bearing with me. Those of you who are uh, continuing to listen um, as I'm continuing to figure out uh, this medium and how to do all of this, it is kind of funny. I told a friend the other day, uh, as a uh, a preacher, somebody who gets paid money to talk, uh, this is a little bit of a different medium uh, to do that in because when you talk uh, to to people that that you're looking at them, you're either on camera or uh, they're there with you in person, you can use things like silence like that. Um, but when you are talking in this uh, format, the uh, old radio adage kind of uh, comes to be uh, very true that you can't have any dead air. I know sometimes when I listen to podcasts and they uh, they have a little pause for effect, sometimes I sort of jump and I uh, take a look at my phone to see if maybe uh, I lost the signal or something like that. So it is a little bit different uh, just kind of learning to use this, uh, this medium, but I'm having a lot of fun. I hope you're having a lot of fun um, as well. So today we're going to delve into, um, into a story and, and and before I actually get into the story, I want to just talk a little bit about the the significance of stories themselves. Um, I love stories. Stories are great. Um, I, I think even from being little kids, we all can uh, have those memories of uh, sitting on a parent or grandparent or loved one's lap and them t- uh, reading us a story or telling us a story. And uh, those of us who are parents um, and we put our kids to bed every night with a story, um, we know inevitably that they are going to ask for uh, just one more. We're sort of, I, I don't know if we're wired that way, but it seems like we're wired that way to uh, really enjoy um, interacting with stories. And, and I, I did a little reading this week, um, and, and uh, as, I, as I do, um, I tend to just like science. I like to kind of know what's going on um, uh, you know, scientifically uh, with things, which is interesting because I never did that well in science in school. Uh, that was not my subject uh, of choice. I just, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't, I didn't thrive in it. I, uh, I did very poor grades in it in college. I actually uh, failed a science class or two, but uh, isn't it funny how when you get older, you start to appreciate things that you didn't appreciate before. And so uh, one of the things that I appreciate now uh, is science and I try to spend some time uh, learning about it. So I was reading uh, just a little bit about, um, about what happens 
when you hear a story, and, and uh, specifically uh, uh, from a neuroscience perspective, what happens in the brain. Um, and, and so we all have brain waves, and, and everybody kind of has unique brain waves that can hook you up to whatever it is the equipment is that measures brain waves. I don't know if you, uh, if you know that. Uh, <laughs> maybe let me know uh, what that equipment is. But, um, but they, they can measure your brain waves. And um, if they keep you hooked up to that equipment while um, you are listening to a storyteller tell a story, uh, what happens is you um, is is uh, your brain waves um, begin to uh, match those of the storyteller's brain waves, and in fact, everybody else that's listening along with you. Um, all of the brain waves begin to sort of uh, align, begin to to look similar, and and um, and it's it's interesting um, that what that kind of suggests to me, at least, is that at least for a period of time, while you're hearing a story, um, you begin to uh, at least in some small way identify with the person who is telling you the story. Um, we can't live someone else's life. Uh, everybody's life is unique to them. But at least for a moment, we can begin to get a glimpse of what um, their life is uh, is a little bit like. And and I think that's fascinating because that, that, that's so important for us to be able to identify with our, our neighbors, with our brothers and sisters uh, and those around us. Uh, that's how we learn uh, different perspectives. That's how we uh, we gain different insights and different knowledge. So, um, so let let's definitely grasp on to that uh, reality that we knew as children um, to to just thoroughly um, enjoy hearing stories, um, both uh, sort of fictional stories um, the, that are made up but convey truth, um, but also those uh, those nonfiction stories, those those real stories, so to speak, of uh, of real people, and that's one of the ones that we're going to uh, delve in uh, to today. Um, just the other week, I heard the story for the first time ever of uh, Michael Scott Moore, um, and you probably haven't heard of him, and I didn't either before last week. Um, but Michael Scott Moore was um, someone who was held captive by Somali pirates. Now, maybe if you're into um, to pop culture and things like that, or you know uh, America's dad, as he's sometimes known, uh, Tom Hanks, uh, started in a film called Captain Phillips, which was a pretty uh, famous story uh, about a um, uh, the captain of the uh, Alabama Maersk. I pronounced that right and put that in the right order, maybe backwards, I'm not quite sure. But uh, he was uh, captured by uh, Somali pirates and uh, and and Navy SEALs uh, ended up saving him, and it's a it's a uh, a good story. I've I've kind of read that story as well. I've not actually seen the movie, but I've read the story. Um, so that that's kind of the the maybe famous example we have in recent memory. But uh, Michael Scott Moore's uh, story, uh, I think, is actually a lot more interesting. Uh, quite frankly, uh, happens um, actually after. Um, after the Captain Phillips uh, sort of incident. And actually, um, as, as he tells the story, Michael Scott Moore actually watched part of the, uh, the Captain Phillips movie with Tom Hanks um, on a, a smartphone while he was in captivity. So that, that, that's sort of, uh, sort of interesting. Um, and I'm not going to tell you the entirety of, um, of his story. Um, I encourage you to sort of uh, seek out some other ways to check that out. Uh, if you just Google Michael Scott Moore, uh, a lot of this will come up. He's done some TED Talks. He's been on several other podcasts. Well, several other podcasts. It makes it seem like he's right here with me. He's not. Um, but he's been on, on several podcasts. He's been on, uh, on TV programs. Uh, he's written some articles 
because he's a writer. Uh, so there's a lot of ways for you to interact with the story, and I really encourage you to check uh, to, to check that out because it really is a fantastic story. But just I'm, I'm going to kind of hit the highlights here. Um, so Michael Scott Moore was held captive by Somali pirates uh, for 977 days, 977 days. Uh, so if you're keeping track at home, that's two years and eight months that he was, uh, he was held captive. And, and when we hear pirates uh, and Somali pirates, we have these uh, images of things uh, happening on the high seas. Um, and that wasn't his story. He was actually uh, taken captive uh, on land in Somalia. Uh, and in fact, only uh, spent something like a month or two uh, of his entire two years and eight months of captivity uh, actually on a boat. Everything else was on land. Um, so so uh, kind of uh, breaking the mold there a little bit from what we might expect. But 977 days, two years and eight months. And kind of the, the, quick, uh, the, the quick version of the story is that uh, Michael Scott Moore um, is a journalist. Um, he has dual citizenship both as an American uh, and as a German and um, he had been following a story about um, uh, about some Somali pirates who were put on trial um, in Germany, and it was kind of an interesting story. He said because uh, I forget how how long it had been, but it's something in the ballpark of of two hundred or three hundred years uh, since the last time pirates had been put on trial um, in Germany. Um, and, and he said the, the, there was a lot of challenges because there wasn't a lot of good law that made sense in, you know, in, in the 21st century and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he said it was a really, really interesting but challenging case, um, and he kind of became fascinated with it from a journalistic uh, perspective, and he, he was sort of following it um, and trying to study it. And it occurred to him as he followed it that, um, that people really didn't have a good understanding of um, of piracy uh, in Somalia, um, they made a lot of assumptions, um, or they didn't uh, dig deep enough on a lot of the statements that were being made, sometimes by Somali pirates themselves. And so um, he uh, he he got a grant through the, um, the Pulitzer um, Center, uh, the same ones that do the prize, and um, he traveled to uh, Somalia and was there for ten days. And spent time um, learning about uh, piracy uh, sort of from the source. In fact, actually met several pirates and, and things like that and did some interviews. And uh, was actually dropping a friend of his who was also there studying piracy uh, off of the airport. And on the way back from uh, dropping his friend off at the airport in Somalia, uh, he, he was, he was uh, taken hostage. He was abducted. He was uh, taken captive um, by these uh, Somali pirates. And, and thus um, unfolded uh, 977 days. They demanded $20 million um, for his release, um, which uh, he said was an absurd number, and it certainly sounds like an absurd number to, uh, to all of us. Um, and, and to, I guess, go ahead and g- give away the end of the story, I mean, obviously he got out. Um, he, was, um, he was freed. Um, uh, his mother... And a group of others were able to basically negotiate that number down to, uh, I believe it was $1.6 million, and they were able to raise that. And um, ultimately, he was freed. Um, and I, I may have not have mentioned earlier, he, he since wrote a book about it called The Desert and the Sea, which I have not read. I, I'd like to. Uh, and that's kind of his, uh, his full big account of, um, of the story. And you can get, obviously, smaller bits in uh, TV interviews and podcasts and some uh, articles that he's written. 
but um, but but definitely check out the the depth of that story. But one of the things he talks about is um, is after he had been held captive for um, a, a significant period of time, I think over two years. Um, you know that 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 level of captivity obviously begins to just wear on somebody um, as you've done that uh, for so long. And, um, and and he said he began to kind of contemplate uh, a lot of things. I mean, obviously he contemplated trying to um, to to get out, trying to uh, escape. Uh, in fact, actually made one uh, one attempt to uh, to escape. Uh, at least one, one attempt that I've heard of. There may have been some uh, some other ones, but um, in, in addition to um, to that, he um, he obviously began to to think about taking out his anger and his frustrations on his guards. Um, hurting them or, uh, or killing them. Uh, and he said he had the opportunity to because they oftentimes left the Kalashnikov uh, rifles that they would carry uh, laying around uh, very carelessly. And there were a number of opportunities that he would have to, uh, to, to pick them up. And he said he, he would um, spend uh, you know, whole days uh, sometimes staring at a rifle that had been left carelessly um, just outside of his grasp that he could have grabbed very easily, um, he he spent whole days kind of uh, kind of going through in his mind, um, picking the gun up and uh, and uh, killing his captives and trying to escape. And he said this was very odd for him because um, he he was a very sort of peace loving uh, individual. He didn't like violence. Uh, I don't know that he'd ever. Uh, if he, he may, maybe he shot a gun, but he he did, wasn't that experienced with it. So he said that that was very out of character. So, but it was just it became a matter of fact part of his life. Um, every single day, looking at these guns and thinking about picking them up uh, and and killing people and trying to escape. And uh, before long, he kind of began to realize that uh, usually there was no less than seven guards around him, and that 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 any effort to try to shoot his way out would basically be a suicidal effort because there were just too many of them. And while he would certainly maybe take some out, eventually one of them would get him, and uh, and it would just simply end his life. And he began to, to, to think, well, you know, maybe that's a good thing to do because um, he thought, you know, there, there's my mother back home in California and she is uh, worried sick over me and spending all of her days trying to, <laughs> you know, theoretically raise money and negotiate with these pirates and all this kind of stuff uh, to get me out. He began to think about the fact that um, that, that there were these Navy SEALs uh, who were probably training for a mission to come in and save him and they were going to put uh, their life at risk, and he just he began to think about um, would he be able to live with himself if um, if you know an American service member um, had uh, had been killed in an effort to to free him? How would he respond to that? So he he said he began to kind of enter into a very dark place, and um, and so that that idea of looking at the gun and thinking about shooting his way out uh, ultimately kind of pivoted to the idea of him picking the gun up and ending his own life. Uh, and he began to believe that uh, that that might actually be um, the best option um, for him. It would it, it, it could possibly save a U.S. service member's life uh, or multiple lives. Uh, could um, in his mind at that time put his mother out of misery and uh, and just save everybody all the trouble. So he said he was just that that was really beginning to be the mindset that that he woke up with. Um, every day. Um, and, and the starting point for him really was the fact that he was enraged, um, by these folks, uh, who were holding him captive. And and he said, uh, something really interesting happened. And this is kind of what, what piqued my interest, uh, as a pastor. He said, uh, one of the few things that he had, uh, by that point in his captivity is he had a small transistor radio. 
and um, he would put it on the the BBC uh, radio service. And and one day um, he heard um, Pope Francis uh, giving um, a, a homily, uh, a sermon, uh, really in the Vatican, and um, and, and he kind of paid attention to this. Um, uh, the the Pope Francis had been elevated to be the Pope uh, while he was in captivity, and he was a, a lapsed Catholic. Uh, he was somebody who had uh, was born and raised Catholic, but wasn't continuing to practice um, much of any faith at all. But he he listened to this sermon um, in captivity on a small transistor radio, where the Pope talked about forgiveness, and and he said listening to that gave him the power. To forgive his captives in their in his mind, um, he realized that he had to forgive the people um, who were causing him the most immediate pain. Um, the, those um, seven to sort of fifteen or so um, Somali pirates who were holding him captive, um, and and uh, he he worded it really interesting. He he said um, he said you, you you hear a lot about forgiveness. And it sounds like a neat idea, but he said, for me, um, it was a life or death thing. He said, I, I was about to, to end my life um, uh, until I had forgiven um, these, these men uh, who were holding me captive. And, and that, isn't that just sort of an interesting um, way to think about forgiveness? I mean, as, as Christians, we talk about forgiveness all the time. Uh, I, I think it probably comes up in some way, shape, and or form in just about uh, every worship service, um, at least I lead. Um, and, and most of us as Christians probably uh, can identify with the concept of forgiveness. But uh, oftentimes it runs the risk of just kind of being that like hallmark, you know, nice idea. Oh, gee, yep, let's, uh, let's ask for forgiveness and let's give forgiveness, that sort of thing. But a lot of times we don't necessarily think about the fact that, that it, it is truly, um, it can truly be a life uh, and death sort of reality. Um, and, and I think most of us, uh, you know, it's one thing to certainly ask um, for forgiveness for having done something wrong, uh, some, sometimes that's hard, but sometimes that can be easy. Uh, a lot of times the, the harder thing is to actually um, offer that forgiveness to somebody else who has done something wrong to us, especially something really, really bad. And, and, and if you've been in that boat before, um, you, you probably know that, that it, it has a tendency sometimes to sort of um, eat away at you. Um, to really actually um, impact you and and to uh, to to really almost change your very character um, because you're holding on to this grudge, you're holding on to this uh, this anger, this this frustration, this hurt. Um, which and if someone has hurt you, um, you're still letting them hurt you um, by by still hanging on to it. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to look at his story and and to recognize that this is a guy um, who lost you know two years and eight months of his life. He was uh, beaten up. He was malnourished. He had all kinds of medical issues going on by the time he was finally released. Uh, and and yet this guy um, recognized the the actual life and death necessity um, of, um, of of offering forgiveness, even if it was just in his own mind, um, to uh, to his captives. Uh, and it reminds me of a um, 
uh, of, of a story of Jesus and Peter. And we see them uh, having a lot of stories together in the Gospels because they're, they're together a lot. Um, and, and Peter's always that, that, that guy in the Gospels that kind of speaks for us, for us humans. So uh, it's, it's always good to kind of ident- identify with him. It comes in Matthew uh, chapter 18, uh, specifically 21 and 22 are the verses. And, and Peter's asking Jesus, um, you know, how many times uh, do I need to forgive? What, what, what's the cutoff point? At what, at what point do I get to say, okay, now I get to really stick it to you? And he, he throws out a number, seven, because seven's a good biblical number, right? Uh, seven days in creation, seven is completion. So if I forgive somebody seven times, if I completed my journey as a Christian, and now I can, uh, now I can really stick it to them. And, and Jesus responds, not seven times, but 77 times, which, which um, it should not be read as saying, okay, keep a little t- tally uh, in your notebook and what once you've forgiven somebody 77 times, you're, you're free. Um, rather, Jesus is expanding the idea to say that you never hit that point when you, um, when you don't continue to offer forgiveness. Uh, he's basically making this, this, this image, if you will, that, that forgiveness is, is a never-ending um, reservoir of grace. And no matter how much somebody comes back to that reservoir of grace, there is always more grace. There's always more forgiveness. Because that's true of how God uh, interacts with us. And, and uh, being that, that we bear the name uh, of Christ in the world, um, that, that it's true for us um, as well. That um, that we continue to to offer um, that forgiveness from uh, essentially the never ending uh, reservoir of grace. So I, I want to just kind of leave you uh, with that today. That um, the, the 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 troubles um, in this world, certainly the things that we do to others and the things we do to God, are real. And the things that people do to us, um, those are real. I don't want to ever ne- uh, negate that. I'm, I'm sure all of us have been. Uh, wronged and people have um, have hurt us um, in, in many in various ways but but a, a great tool that we have um, is forgiveness and, and it certainly is a, a gift uh, that we offer to others it is a, a never-ending reservoir of grace uh, that we can offer others but it's also a never-ending reservoir of grace uh, for us um, as well. Because when, when we don't forgive, when we continue to just sort of hold on to the hurt, uh, hold on to the anger and the frustration, um, it, it impacts us and, and it, it changes us and, and it keeps us um, from, from being um, who we truly are. Um, so I, I'll kind of leave you with that, uh, that, that uh, interesting story of Michael Scott Moore. Um, I, I hope that maybe your uh, your brain waves uh, have a, a maybe adjusted uh, ever so slightly uh, to his brain waves um, to see uh, that that forgiveness is a very real thing in this world. Uh, it's a thing for you, and, and it truly is a life and death uh, sort of thing. So, anyways, I'm going to go ahead and uh, kind of wrap up here. I uh, just want to make a couple of uh, quick uh, little announcements. Um, next week's episode, we're going to have our first ever guest. Uh, really excited uh, about that. Going to have our first ever guest. Um, you may remember her, uh, those uh, Good Shepherd folks who uh, listen, um, Becca Forst, uh, who uh, worked here at Good Shepherd for a number of years as our youth and family minister. Um, she is a youth and family minister over at uh, Holy Comforter. Uh, Lutheran Church in Belmont, uh, North Carolina, just next door 
the town next door to us. She's also um, in seminary right now and a candidate uh, for ordination to be a deacon uh, in the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So maybe you're wondering, uh, you know, what's, uh, what is a deacon and what's it like to be in seminary? Uh, what's it like to, to, um, to be called to public ministry? If you're wondering those things, great, because that's what we're going to delve into. So uh, do please uh, thank you for listening to this one and make sure that you tune in next week to, uh, to hear my conversation with Becca. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a really uh, fun time. And we've got a number of other really exciting guests uh, already lined up and some other neat show ideas. So uh, thank you for, uh, for continuing to listen and to hang in there with me uh, as I learn this, uh, learn this medium. Um, I'm having fun. I hope you're having fun. And we've got a lot of great things in store uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. So thanks and have a great day.